1: Welcome to episode 108 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. One of the most frequent questions I get asked is about raising other children when you are grieving, raising children who are going through their own grief journeys and how just to go about and parent them well. If you are one of the people that has been asking those questions and wanting those answers, then today's guest is the guest for you. So today's guest is Michelle. She lost her son, David, 21 years ago now. In the months and years after David's death, she certainly spent a lot of time trying to help her surviving daughter, Deanna. Over time, though, Michelle knew that she needed to do more. She felt called to do more. She felt called to help parents who are going through this, who are raising young children, teenagers, children of any age, just to help them know what to do and how to parent I would invite all of you to visit her webpage, goodgriefparenting.com. At the end of this episode, she'll talk a little more about what she does and how this can help not only grieving parents, but anyone who works with and loves a child who is going through grief. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Michelle, and talking about your son, David.
2: Thank you, Marcy. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah. We were just chatting a little bit before we started recording that for Michelle, it has been 21 years since yes. the death of David. And she has spent so much of her life now focusing on siblings and how to support. And uh, raise your remaining children after going through this. That she said it was different for her to put herself back twenty-one years, mm-hmm. just to even live in that space again for a minute was just different and a little more challenging than you thought it would be. Hmm. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: It it still is painful when you allow you know when I allow myself to to go there and to think about who he was and think about the ins and outs of our two and a half year journey. And yeah, the the potential mingled with the, the realization that we could lose him. And then of course, we eventually did. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you start out by just talking about David and who he was as a kid and just growing up? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he was,
2: first of all, when I became pregnant, I always wanted a daughter, I didn't have the the re- really the best relationship with my own mother. And so I just always wanted a daughter to have a good mother daughter relationship. And I learned that I was having a son. And of course, I was going to love whatever child I have. But mm-hmm. it did it did not take me any time at all to know how wonderful little boys are and to just be so uh, totally enamored by him. He was just bright and precocious and smart. And he was so tender hearted, but yet had a lot of emotion. I described him as exuberant. You know, we can think of children in their twos and threes, and all the things they do at that age, as being kind of challenging. Mm -hmm. And so I framed him as exuberant and that was the way I saw him just with the pictures I have of him now are jumping around the living room playing guitar to something that it Tarzan at the time it was Tarzan, (laughs) the Tarzan soundtrack and so I think of the energy that he had. I also think of what what a wonderful, loving, tender hearted friend and big brother he was. His uh, sister was three years younger than he and he was just such a caring, they were just very close. They they loved each other. And he was just a wonderful big brother and very good to her. When he got his cancer, he, he became irritable at times because of his cancer. And, and that was a, a tough journey for him in so many ways. Their relationship was just one of a lot of tenderness. And he was just a very good mentor to her. And yeah, he, he was my sunshine. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: You talked about journals that you had too, that you started writing even before he was born. Yes, I did. I I really wanted
2: to be a mom. I didn't become a mom until my mid-30s. I married later, had children later, and by the time I was going to have him, I was just, you know, very excited about it. I started writing journals to him as soon as I learned that he was coming, and I called him Little Peanut and, um, you know, wrote journals even after he died at the age of uh, not Uh, two months short of his seventh birthday, he died of cancer. And I continued to write, you know, to him after that, wrote to his sister as well. And so I do have a lot of history of him and who he was and who his sister was and is. And yeah, Mm,
1: that's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk a little bit about that cancer journey that you had and kind of how that started and went through?
2: Yeah, his journey started in December of 1997. Mm -hmm. He was outside playing in in the winter in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I was watching him and his friend from the living room window and I noticed that he kind of kept sticking his hands in the front of his pants And I didn't know what he was doing. And finally, I called him to the door and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm feeling these bumps. And he had about three lymph nodes kind of poking through his little lean little pelvis area. Mm -hmm. And so we took him to the doctor and she thought he had an infection you know, she treated him for that. It didn't make, it didn't make them go away. And his dad actually was the one who kind of examined him as only a dad would and found that um, between his legs in his perineal area, it was as hard as a rock. Wow! And he actually had a mass the size of a grapefruit between his legs in his perineal area, oh, my. and and it was his cancer. And we learned, you know, after that, his preschool teacher said he had gotten more fidgety when he had to sit on the floor. And, you know, she had just noticed some of these things. Well, he'd been sitting on this, and it, it didn't protrude out of him. It was inside, you know, where we couldn't see it. And so that started his journey with rhabdomyosarcoma. Mm -hmm. And we did chemo for a year and it actually retreated very quickly after being, when we started the chemo, the the tumor actually went away very quickly. The plan was to shrink it a bit and then surgically remove it. And it responded so well to the chemo that it actually went away. So when they had to go in and do the uh, surgery, they weren't you know, they they weren't really sure. They didn't want it to go away because they wanted to know where it was so they could get a clean margin. And mm-hmm. uh, they felt that they had, uh, we had. We were very confident about the surgeon. He was the best and he felt like he'd gotten the clean margin. And so then we just continued the course of chemo for a whole year, then waited four months after his uh, chemo ended to do an MRI and a a CAT scan and check him out really thoroughly and everything was completely clear and we took out his portacath, and and I knew at the time that I would you know we knew it could come back we knew the nature of cancer and and I thought okay I'll live the rest of my life kind of with bated breath mm-hmm. waiting for the other shoe to drop but you know we had no reason to think that he wasn't going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. But it was really two short months after he got his port removed, that he started to experience some discomfort again. And he was, I, I mentioned that he was a tender hearted kid, he was the kind of kid that when he got cancer, I mean, of course, a parent would never think you know, would never choose for their child to have that. But he was the kind of kid that I just thought, oh, this will be devastating to him. Mm -hmm. This child can't go through this because he was so tender. And he actually went through his first year really well, you know, those of us who I I think it's probably relatively common for those of us who have had kids go through cancer, that when he would come home from treatment, and he would not even go in the house, he would just run off and play and he was full of energy. Oh wow! So now his cancer, he he felt like his cancer was back, but his pediatrician just really kind of said, Well, you know, I think David's just kind of you know, particularly sensitive. And she didn't really think that was what it was. But it was in fact, back kind of with a vengeance, it was it was also in his bone marrow. And this was just two months after he had had clear scans of every kind. So it came back very aggressively. And, and when it came back, he was one of the First, I remember this was 21 years ago, and this was back in 1999 when it came back. And he was one of the first kids to have a stem cell transplant at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. He had a full, you know, he had six weeks of radiation and he had just the high dose extraordinarily toxic chemo they just pulled out all of the stops this time around to treat him because the thing about his cancer was that when it comes back the prognosis is much worse um, is very poor so they just hit it With everything that they had, you know, he was, uh, he was a fighter, he was aggressive, he used to be mean to the nurses or get mad at the nurses. And we were appalled by that. But they would say no, this is the kind of we like to see kids like this, because he's fighting and
1: you want some spunk. Yes.
2: And, you know, he would become a cheetah. That's he'd say. I'm a cheetah. And when he had to go get his radiation, he wouldn't tolerate it. They had to totally sedate him to give him just um, 90 seconds of radiation. Oh so for six for six weeks, we had to put him totally under every morning for 90 seconds of radiation, because otherwise he would be a cheetah and he just wouldn't put up with it. And so we did a lot of, you know, working with him on how to, you know, I gave him a boppy thing to, to fight in his, in his um, hospital room when he felt angry. And, um, you know, we really did deal with a lot of his spunk. And so for the next, and I've lost track of, of the months, but, but I think it was a, you know, another year of all of that and his cancer did go away. But we everybody knew that, you know, that wasn't necessarily a good sign. And and it did, as soon as we stopped everything, it did promptly come back again. Mm -hmm. And they had nothing more that they could do with him or for him. And he said, I don't want to go back to the hospital. And we said, you're not going back to the hospital. So we kept him at home. And, and this was, of course, there was no COVID or anything to interfere with the comings and goings. And he had many people coming to, to see him, you know, we had wonderful home care nurses and his sister was there who has become, you know, my, became my purpose after her brother died. And was able, she was able to continue, they were able to continue their relationship. And he became in so much pain. The last mm-hmm. words that he ever said to me were, oh, mommy, ow" when his head was hurting. And we had him on fentanyl and he would just kind of raise the level until he would, you know, be completely sedated. And the night that he died, he was he was complete, had been sort of in a coma for, you know, completely sedated for a few days. And we could see in his catheter that, it, I mean, this is really, mm-hmm. it's just such a visual. So I'll say it, even though it sounds horrible, it, we could see pieces of his his body Mm -hmm. of his flesh, you know, coming off and coming through his catheter, and he was just totally deteriorating. Mm -hmm. And so one night when I was holding him and rocking him. And he hadn't been responsive for a number of days. And I was singing to him as as I always did. I said to his dad, we've got to figure out how to get him in our bed because he'd been sleeping on a mattress on the floor in the room with his sister. And when I said we have to figure out how to get him in our bed and his dad said, okay, David smiled at me. Oh, so I knew, uh, you know, he was he knew that he was going to be in our bed and he died that night between his dad and me in our bed. And so that was that was when our little boy left and he died in the in the morning in the at about three in the morning, which was I had had exper- experiences I had w- awakened at the same time every morning for many many weeks and felt like it was sort of a time in fact we had one morning heard him at that time having a conversation
1: Mm -hmm.
2: we had an intercom in the children's bedroom a baby monitor and when i woke up at that time one morning i heard him talking to someone and he was saying I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And he listened for a while. And then he said, all right, I'll come. Oh, my. And the next day, uh, I mean, we had to go in. He was really in a lot of pain at this time. And we had had to go in after that and sort of comfort him because he was in pain. The next morning, we sort of checked him out to see if he remembered talking to anybody. And he didn't. Yeah. but he was different and from that point on he was really different he was more mature he was upbeat he was helpful in a different way he was sort he was at peace in a yeah. way yeah and i just really feel that he was visited when he had to go into the surgery to get his port put back in after he'd had it removed. And this was after this incident where we had heard this conversation, which was actually just a couple days after we had learned his cancer was back. The chaplain said to him when he was going into surgery, David, are you afraid? And he said, no, I'm not afraid. I have Jesus in my heart. And Jesus loves me even more than mommy and daddy do. And his dad and I kind of looked at each other because we hadn't told David this. Yeah. And when I was in the hospital with him that night, he he wanted to say his own prayer, which he hadn't done before, and he just prayed to Jesus, and it was uh, really a, a wonderful prayer. So I just really feel uh, know that he was visited by by someone. Mm-hmm and it was at that same similar time of the morning that he died in our bed. And then we waited until his sister got up. We didn't do anything with him or take his port out or anything and waited until she got up to to see him. And she was mad. She said, God should have let David grow up before he took him to heaven. And she folded her little arms and and looked at her brother and we let her help us kind of remove some of his tubing and things that were stuck to him and then called the called the funeral home to come and get him and yeah and sent our little boy away from our
1: home so yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah just so hard (laughs)
2: well it it really is my purpose became his little sister because the other part of the story is that they were very very close and she she adored him he adored her they were very close she was 15 months old when he was diagnosed with cancer And the first night that he was in the hospital, his dad was with him and she was home with me. And she wandered around the house. She was 15 months old and she wandered upstairs and downstairs just wailing. She was making an inhuman sound and I was alarmed. I had never heard a human being make a sound like this and i would go to her and try to comfort her and she'd push me away and throw herself on the floor she was just feeling with every cell of her little body that her world had turned totally upside down and something was terribly wrong
1: uh-huh. yeah
2: so we decided at that point that she there were four of us in this family and she was going to be with us on this journey. We didn't want this for her. We right. didn't want her to be exposed to this, but we weren't going to do what so many other families did, which, we, you know, I'm not judging them or anything, but we just knew that if three of us were going to be in the hospital, four of us were going to be in the hospital. We weren't going to send her to a neighbor. We had we lived in a cul-de-sac. We were a very close neighborhood. There were plenty of people who would have kept her. We didn't have them do that very often at all. We usually took her with us. And Mm -hmm. she was able to spend those two and a half years of his journey developing this loving relationship with her brother. Of course, we were in a children's hospital. So, and this was. 21 years ago, pre-COVID hospitals, even children's hospitals have changed a lot yeah. now, but she was able to be with him in his room. She was able to, we thought, this is your life. This is your brother's life. This is your life. So she was exposed to little kids with patches on and bald heads and and going down the hall, carrying, you know, pulling a, a transfusion or whatever it's Pump, called. Yeah. A, a pole, you know, their little pole with their bag hanging on it and so that was that was her life as well and when her brother died she she had had a lot of preparation for this and we were glad that we had given her that even though it was never what I would have wished for her. Mm-hmm. And it was not long after her brother had died that she actually said to me, "Mommy, half of me is gone." yeah Wow. that's why she of course i could do i miss my son i i he's my precious beautiful firstborn uh, just adorable tender-hearted boy and now i had his little sister to grow up without him and she became my focus and i was an early childhood parent educator Before my children ever before my son ever got cancer, this was my focus was uh, making good things happen for children, my children's ages for children, my daughter's ages, so that, you know, helping parents parent them in the best way possible so they can grow up whole and happy. And now I was faced with something so devastating. Yeah yeah and that i knew nothing about it was a a huge challenge for me but i saw it as first of all i thought well this is what i do i'm kind of attuned to this which gave me in a way a head start and i also thought i knew where the resources were but there weren't any there really yeah. weren't any
1: mm-hmm.
2: so 21 years ago i decided that i had to do something about this, um, that eventually I would be the one that provided the resource for parents like me and children like her. But she's going to be 25 next week. (sighs) And it took me to actually get her through high school before I could really take this on because it took A long time, as we were sort of talking about before we started recording, it's still, when I allow myself to think about it, I've Mm -hmm. focused so much on her over these years and helping parents recognize what their surviving children need, that to think about who he was and what it was like. Uh, Another podcast host asked me to think about what it was like for me as a mom back then. And it and it was really painful to go there. Yeah. And it took me the years of recognizing, of getting through our journey completely. I would have loved to have taken this on to work with other families and support other families a lot sooner but I simply wasn't able to my own journey was just too big for me. Yeah. And I had to wait until I could really say okay I've sort of I've launched my daughter. I've gotten through all of the parts of her growing up where we kept bumping into the fact that she had lost her brother, and how I still have my temper tantrum moments, that she should have her brother, and I'm so mad that she doesn't, Mm -hmm. and that I don't have my son, and I still have those moments. But now I'm able to focus on other people's journeys that are so much fresher than my own. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. So tell us about what you're doing now with the Grief Parenting
2: there's a quote that I think uh, I found it along the way when I knew that that this was what I wanted to do. As I said, I came out of a an early childhood parent education background, mm-hmm. so that was my foundation. I have a master's in family education. I'm an educator at heart. When I knew I wanted to do this, I also got my certification from the Grief Recovery Institute that has a program on helping children through grief. So but my focus was going to be on the parenting piece. Because when my daughter at three and a half said to me, mommy, half of me is gone. All I could think about was her whole life is ahead of her. Yeah, I knew half of her was gone. Mm -hmm. Her entire life had been spent with her brother. He was there when she was born. And her whole identity was as a sister to this big brother who adored her. And she adored her brother. And who was she now? Half of her was gone. And I didn't know anything about grief. So I learned a lot and thought, when I get through this and do what I want to do, I want to help parents with this journey. So I mentioned the quote, the quote was from an author uh, named Ann Royphy, who wrote a book after her husband died. And she said there are two parts to grief. The first part is loss. And the second part is the remaking of life. Mm -hmm. And it's that second part, that remaking of life that I'm here to help families with, with good grief parenting, because there are many, many supports for us with our loss. That idea that we've had something devastating happen. We've lost this person, in our case, this child, that part of us that was In our family, that we birthed as moms, and you know, just the most—they call it the worst loss, and and in so Mm -hmm. many ways, it is on so many levels, it is. But there's a lot to help us with that. Then you know, we go to eight-week grief support groups. At least I did. Deanna did. There were things for her as a sibling. And then we come out of that program and her whole lifetime is ahead of her and all of her fr- her friends have siblings. There are so many places that we bump into for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. So many secondary losses for her and the way that she wanted to make friends, the way that she tried to make friends was really out of this place of replacing her person And it created social challenges for her. You know, she grappled with this, her whole growing up life with being a sibling. Am I still a sibling? She had no other siblings. Yes, you're still a sibling. I coined the term sibling by heart. In my studying over the years, over the 20 years until now, where I just kept my eyes open for anything out there about sibling loss, one of the things that I think we as grievers so often instinctively know, but a lot of people try to tell us otherwise, is that continuing bonds are such an important part of healing and going through grief and living forward. And for a sibling who lost her brother at the age of three and a half and said, half of me is gone, it was really good for me to discover this this idea of continuing bonds and how important it is to maintain the relationship with the sibling and Mm -hmm. for us to maintain the relationship with our child.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: And you know, you've interviewed parent after parent and those of us who talk to you and those of us who talk to others, it's so important for us to preserve that relationship with our child. And for a long time, the idea around grieving and healing was to move on and and to get Mm -hmm. over it and these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And as grievers, we know that we know there's something wrong with that. And yet people would so often tell us to do that. And I had people telling me that keeping David alive wasn't a good thing for David, but I mean for Deanna, but I knew that it, it was a good thing for her. And now that she's grown, I know that maintaining that relationship was really a good thing
1: for her. Yeah, and I think, you know, with siblings especially, really people do not want to talk about it to them. I mean, they do not right. want to mention it at mm-hmm. all. It, mm-hmm. I feel like it's taboo to mention it even to parents that they, mm-hmm. but at least every once in a while they feel like it's maybe okay, but it's like mm-hmm. never okay to talk to someone about their dead brother. I mean, it just... exactly. I just feel so awful for my kids because yes, it's just like it just stops the conversation. You know, my daughter just went off to college and she's like it's just so hard. You just feel like they always ask you, you know, oh. how many siblings you have always. Mm-hmm. And you can't mm-hmm. you know, you either lie and mm-hmm. you don't mention him or if you do it's just like okay, now ever now it's just awkward for everyone and no one knows what to say and so yes it's just it puts them in such a horrible spot in general you know it does and
2: that's just the tip of the iceberg you know for them uh, is having to deal with that question and the and when people become aware that that they had a brother or had a sibling there are just so many other ways and places where the absence of that sibling is just um it's yeah. just completely irreconcilable.
1: Well, and I think about your yeah. daughter and she lost that innocence that mm-hmm. kids have that their life is just safe, you know, that their life is safe and right. bad right. things don't happen and you only die when you're old and or in a fairy tale, then you can die and just come back to life and have it be all fine and dandy again. So she just right. lost that innocence so, so young too. Mm-hmm. That's such a... Such a challenge, I think, when now you have to live like that, when you live knowing that the horrible can happen. And it just makes you so much different than everyone else, right?
2: It does. It's very alienating. And the other piece of it, which is why I do what I do, is because parents, especially with the really young, with your children, of course, they're going to voice their their feelings. You're going to have conversations. With a three-and-a-half-year-old, had she not said to me, mommy, half of me is gone, I wouldn't have I would have been left wondering at the depth of her experience. I would have remembered that little 15 month old that felt it with every cell of her body. Those are two experiences that most parents who have young bereaved children never have. Mm -hmm. To see that grief just oozing out of her and coming out as this, just this inhuman wail that she was making, I had... An insight through her that really reinforced what I already knew because of my early childhood background that these kids are experiencing it and adults don't see it because of the way kids grieve differently, and especially very young children who usually don't have the vocabulary to say, Half of me is gone. Right. Um, And so then parents don't want to talk to them about it because they don't want to upset them or bother them or bring something heavy into them. But the truth is, as we realized with Deanna, like it or not, this was her life. Right. And so avoiding it did her no services at all. Keeping her away from the hospital only meant that she didn't know what was going on. And that she didn't have as much time with her brother to develop that that just priceless, precious relationship. And so we just thought, you know, she, she has this whether we want it or not. So I want to help parents recognize how do you do it then when your family has this grief, ignoring it, downplaying it, not talking to your child about it, feels like the right thing to do but it really doesn't do your child any service at all yeah. and so
1: you know I just yeah we had I had an experience oh it's been close to two years ago somebody told me that they had you know they they had lost their daughter this was in a support group that I was in mm-hmm. and it was six months later and they brought the three-year-old three and a half I think To the pediatrician, I think just for a checkup or something, but mentioned that she just wasn't sleeping. And the mom said, I think it's still because of the death of her sister. And Mm -hmm. her pediatrician said, oh, I thought she'd be over that by now. Oh. And that's her pediatrician. And it just broke my heart. It broke my heart. And I know she didn't mean it in, in that callous, horrible of a way, but she obviously has no insight into that it just affects you to your very core. And, yes. You know, it uh anyway, it just was so heartbreaking to me. So I love that you are doing this and that mm-hmm. you are acknowledging the little ones because yes. people tend to think they're kind of okay and like just let them go play because they will, right? They will. Yes. Your daughter On the day your son died, I'm sure had periods of time that very day where she played. Yes, absolutely. Because children play, and that is their Mm -hmm. work, and that is what they do. They play. That does not mean that her world wasn't turned upside down, and she wasn't devastated, and she didn't feel... I mean, she said to you, half of me is missing. That doesn't mean that this little girl didn't go outside and enjoy playing on the swing set and in the sandbox and with her little Mm -hmm. friends. She still did all of that on the outside, right? She still did it. Maybe not every minute of every day like she was, but there are lots of times when they look from the outside to be fine. Absolutely. And in fact,
2: I would not have known, I would not have known because she, I think in her childhood, in fact, I guess really in her life, she didn't, she really didn't cry about it. She didn't uh-huh. act sad. In fact, the, the one time that, she did be sad visibly to me was when we were at a playground and she was playing by herself. We had gone just the two of us and there were a few other kids there, not a lot of kids, but I couldn't find her at one point. And I went and found her behind something crying. And she just said, mommy, nobody can know the pain that we feel. And that's the only time that I uh, that I, re- you know, that I really saw her being sad, but I knew she was, I heard her playing in her room, sometimes singing about wishing that her brother was there and how much she missed her brother and she'd be playing and singing, but it's but not like. But yet she like... didn't
1: talk to you about it. No, because no. I, because I've said this again and again and again, and I know Gwen has said this, The children want to protect their parents, no matter how yes. young they are. They want to protect their parents. She played like that by herself when she knew it wouldn't put tears in your eyes. Mm -hmm. At three and a half, four years old, Mm -hmm. she was trying to take care of you because that's what they do. Yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah, she she did want to protect us. And in fact, when David was sick, she did that as well. You know, she went through her twos and threes, and she was she was just so good. In fact, she was so good that her dad and I would talk to her and say, Deanna, you know, honey, it's okay for you to be mad. It's okay for you to tell us what you want. You know, it's okay for you to act up. She was just so good that we actually talked to her and said, honey, you don't, you don't have to be good all the time because she just really didn't want to rock the boat at all and after her brother died yes she she really she really was uh, Visibly being okay. I remember another time where I was feeling very sad and I was sort of crying. And she came and saw me and I said, Oh, I just miss David. And we would talk about David being still with us. We would talk about his presence being with us. And so I was saying, I miss that David's not still here. And she said, Well, he's here. And I said, I mean, I just really miss his hugs. And she said, oh, mommy, he still hugs me. You know, like, what do you mean? He still hugs me. She had her ninjaness. They used to play ninjas. And she had her ninjaness, she would call it. And she could see him and play with him with her (laughs) ninjaness. And she did this for a long time, you know, probably uh, a year, year and a half. And then at some point, she Told me that her ninja-ness was gone and she she couldn't really see David anymore and she was really sad about that. She wouldn't have shown me grief and so I had to understand that it was there anyway. And one of the things I learned later, as I continued to study this, because early on we had a, a wonderful program through Children's Hospitals. They had a wonderful bereavement program and I learned a lot about grief there and. One of the things, of course, they told us was not to, as adults, not to hide our own feelings from our children, Mm -hmm. to let them know when we were sad, to acknowledge it, to say it even with the really young children. So I did a good job of that with her. I was open with her. And the thing that I didn't do, you said they don't talk about it. And you're right. And the thing I learned later and that I try to help parents with now is that I didn't initiate with her conversation about her feelings. Mm -hmm. I was open about mine. But I didn't ask her Are you feeling, are you missing David too? When do I miss David when I'm doing this? When do you miss David? Giving her a chance to tell me how she was feeling. She didn't volunteer it to me. And I didn't ask her. And so my recommendation to parents is to go that step further, not just letting them see our grief, but inviting them to talk about theirs, because you're right, they won't just most of them won't just do it especially and we're talking now about this early childhood age where they're learning so much about feelings in the first place and we teach them about happy mad and sad Mm -hmm. but we need to also teach them about grief which is a very normal feeling when you lose something that you don't get back and it's not the same as sadness no And so just helping people really understand this feeling that doesn't go away and this feeling that is kind of hanging over everything. They Why do they feel different? They feel it all and we need to help them know that it's okay to talk about it.
1: Yeah, and really grief is, I just always think of this ball that we got, this picture. It was a picture Mm -hmm. of a ball with a tangled up mess of emotions and it listed about I don't know, at least 50 different emotions on there. And it said the tangled emotions of grief. And, it, it you know, we're in the support group and we're supposed to color all the feelings that we are feeling. And I found myself coloring like 75% of the words on the piece of paper because mm-hmm. it isn't just sadness. There is right. so much more. And yeah, to even talk to your kids about that, I think is really important Mm -hmm. That not just are you sad (laughs) because they're not just sad. And and so many I just think about how you raise your kids and how culturally you're supposed to raise your kids, try to raise your kids to be happy, productive, you know, pleasant. But Mm -hmm. these negative emotions that they feel are really important for them to be able to learn how to deal with hmm. Mm-hmm. And not just push them away and pretend like they're not there or you shouldn't feel angry. So just put that away in a box and it's not socially acceptable for you to feel angry. You know what? It is completely reasonable to feel angry. Yeah. Your brother yes. or sister died. That is yes. totally reasonable to be yes. angry about that and to make kids feel like, well, anger is just not something I'm supposed to feel. So that means I really can't feel it now either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just not helping them mature and be able to understand all of these emotions because they're there. They're all there. All of mm-hmm, them are there. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're all
2: acceptable. And that part of when I do my good grief parenting there, I also say that what I talk to parents about who are raising a bereaved sibling applies to all to all kids and how you deal with anger is one of those things. And recognizing that really young children are going to show their grief through behaviors that we might attribute to just growing up. The the two-year-old might be all the more difficult to manage. And rather than just disciplining them and teaching them how to behave better, to behave the right way, we need to recognize what's underneath that emotion. And we should do that all the time with all kids. But when it's grief, if we aren't helping them recognize how grief is in their being and in their reactions to the world and why kids don't always understand themselves why right. they're feeling angry right. and right. you know why they're not sleeping well or why they don't want to eat their or why they're lethargic or what whatever number of things it might be and so helping them understand when they're little and one of the things that i also share with people is that childhood is really the best time to learn about grief because we all experience it in childhood. I didn't lose someone close to me as a child, but I do remember my first episode of grief. And it was when I lost floating toy of all things that I could ride on and it got away from me on the lake at the beach. And it was, I grew up in Lake of the Woods in Northern Minnesota, this big lake that goes on forever to the horizon. And I was riding on this blow up toy Wally the walrus and he got away from me and the wind took him out and no adult could swim and catch him. And I had to stand on the beach and watch him float and float and float. And I remember to this, I was probably five or six. And I remember to this day, that feeling, and it was grief, I lost something that I was never going to get back. And that's really what grief is. And Mark Twain has a quote about grief. And it says, a child's loss of a doll, and a king's loss of a crown, to paraphrase the quote badly, are the same thing. They're equally as devastating. devastating. Mm-hmm. And so if we can help children understand when they're five, six, three, that losing something that you care about that you know you're never going to get back again makes you feel this thing called grief. And it really does feel bad. And there's a reason for feeling it. And it and it's okay. And it's okay. And then when we get to be and to talk about it in our families, so that when we're adults, we can talk about it, and we can support other adults, we can support children I, t- I tell Deanna now that being with her on her journey, I had to learn and help her learn so many things that I didn't learn when I was her age. And I said, you're way ahead of me because you're learning this now. And I didn't learn it till I was 50, you yeah. know? yeah. And my program is called Good Grief Parenting, because grief is good. It's normal and natural. And it is how we heal. People who experience a loss and don't allow themselves to grieve and mourn are going to have a much more difficult time and carry the deepest of the deep pain longer than if they just allow themselves to grieve and feel what Mm -hmm. loss makes us feel and face it and go right through it and talk about it. I -hmm. think that is really important. And it's certainly important with children.
1: Well, and I was thinking of one other example that Gwen and I have talked about that Gwen knew a family who lost their son. And you know, we talked about all of the negative parts of grief, but there are some things that can be and maybe a little bit positive. So mm-hmm. she was telling the story of the boy that, you know, she, he lost his brother. It was terrible. His brother had been sick for a long time. They'd spent a lot of time in the hospital. Obviously, he had not been in the hospital. He'd been home. And he had thought to himself, well, the one thing that will be at least kind of be a little better now, at least mom's going to start cooking again. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he's thinking all these million bad things, but at least I don't have to eat out every day Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. and Mm I can get mom's cooking well mom of course was completely devastated and not even a little bit of her wanted to cook for a Mm -hmm. family with one less person in it so it Mm -hmm. ended up being this you know struggle that they had to work through and eventually they had to talk about as a family because that kid does not want to say to his mom why don't you cook dinner? Because he doesn't want to really say that to her, but he's feeling it. So then he's feeling it and then he's getting kind of resentful and he's not acting, you know, he's acting out maybe a little more as a teenager or whatever. But it just goes to show how that communication is so important, whether you're saying, talking about your negative things or you're talking about that one thing that I thought maybe was going to be a little bit better now that isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so just being so open to talk about everything the the little bits of good and the bad is yes. also vital.
2: You know, I'm in a number of Facebook groups. They didn't have Facebook when I lost yeah. my son, and just being in this space and I'm sure you you are you know uh-huh. what I what I'm going to say and that is people feel so differently about I hear some grieving parents really be upset about a particular thing that someone might say to them. And I think that really wouldn't bother me. Right. And it really does come down to the fact that we don't talk about it. And what another one of the things that I help families with when, because we're always when I'm talking with my groups, you know, we're always talking about the things that people say, or the ways that people don't understand. And it's okay for us to also say to someone, it's not helpful when you say that, I really need for you to know this about me, I just need to do this right now. I know you think I'm wallowing in it but what I'm doing is really good for me. I really need to take this time. You need to let me do it my way. Right. We can, we can actually say these things to people so that it just lets people recognize that, that grievers do know how to grieve. Mm -hmm. They don't all do it the same way, but they know how to do it. And we don't need other
1: people to tell us and it's not helpful when you tell me. What no, and do. it's not
2: helpful. And then like you say, uh, the resentments can come even like you mentioned in the family, mm-hmm. you know, this, the, the boy and his mom talking about it, even just saying, this is the way I'm feeling about this. Well, this is the way I'm feeling about it. I guess we're kind of bumping into each other. We just need to know that about each other yeah, yeah, and yeah. recognize that everyone's journey is absolutely unique. And talking about it is what helps us stay in each other's corner, even though we're not doing it the same way.
1: So how can people get a hold of you or what kind of services are you doing right now?
2: I have a course called See Your Way Forward After Child Loss. That's sort of the foundation of what I do. And I'm launching it the end of this month, actually. And it's an eight week course for parents of early childhood age siblings after child loss. So that's
1: the end of September, because this will be airing in October. So it will have already launched. Yes. So I but I launched that a a few times a year. My
2: website is goodgriefparenting.com. And there on the on my front page, I actually have a resource called the good grief guide that you can download from my website that is for first steps for any adult who wants to help a child through grief and it just gets you started on that journey and I work with families in individual coaching as well as group coaching and my course and so people can reach me through my website goodgriefparenting.com
1: well and that's a great point that you brought up anyone that wants to help a child who's grieving because mm-hmm. sometimes It really can't be the parent. Mm -hmm. I have had, you know, aunts and grandmas and uncles write to me about wanting what they can do to support their siblings and uh, who are grieving parents Mm -hmm. and to support those other children. And sometimes it does need to be someone a little more from the outside. So I would invite those people to also look into this and Mm -hmm. so that they can help. They can be that extra person, that extra resource, because it is, it's just... Because parents do have to focus on their grief as well. So sometimes Mm -hmm. what it means is finding that sister, finding that family friend, finding someone else that can do that for your child if you can't. So I don't want people to put so much pressure on themselves that they have to be the one to do all Mm -hmm. of it because they don't have to be if they can't be.
2: Well, it's also the guide is also about the messages that we give each other around grief, it really starts with the basics. And, uh, you know, that pediatrician yeah. that didn't know sleep, she should she should get this I know. Um, yeah. child, you know, child care providers should pick this up. It just reframes not only how we think about grief and because there are many things that we believe about grief and ways that we deal with grief that are just not helpful, not to any griever and particularly not to a child. And I also include in this guide some really specific I call them sound bites about how to talk to a child in ways that are different than might first come to mind. Mm -hmm. When a child, when we know a child's grieving, instead of distracting them and trying to get their mind off it, what do you say to them that invites them to tell you how they feel and makes you an open, safe person for them to talk to? That's what I was just thinking, to
1: just show Mm -hmm. you're a safe person to talk to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing David with us and sharing Good Grief Parenting with us. I just feel like there are so many valuable pieces of information you can give us. Thank you, Marcy. I appreciated having the
2: opportunity to talk with you. And I love what you're doing. Thank you for giving voice to so many precious stories.
0: Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, always Andy's mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcyandysmom.com. At be sure to visit the webpage, andy'smom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.